0: The conversion of Saul. Hmm. History's
1: got many examples of people who from good intentions ended up doing what we would subsequently recognize as evil. So much so that we are probably all familiar with sayings such as the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And most evil in this world is done by people with good intentions. I don't know what you think about that, but in all honesty, I doubt that anybody ever got up in the morning and said, I'm going to do something because I want to be a bad person today. Normally people have a good intention at heart. Even, and I'm going to be very controversial here, I suspect, even Adolf Hitler... He started off trying to stop the suffering that there was at the end of post-World War I Germany. The hyperinflation, the poverty, the, all the things that were going wrong. And to a certain extent, he succeeded. But we also know where he ended up, because some of his slightly more off-the-wall ideas got mixed in. And in the end, he went, I guess he really went round the bend and implemented them. Today, we're looking at someone who had good intentions. Someone who was seeking to serve God, but found himself actually opposing God. The passage that Sue read earlier links back to Acts 8, 1-3, which Roy touched on last week, which is the very end of the account of Stephen's martyrdom in Act 7, where it says, and Saul approved of their killing him then goes on, that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house dragging off both men and women and committing them to prison. How did Saul get to the point where he, as a Pharisee, and though the Pharisees get a bad press, they were actually generally, what well, we, most people would consider righteous people. When Jesus told them off, it wasn't because they were going around depriving people or whatever. They were praying. They were in the temple. They were doing things. They were teaching the Word of God. They just got self-important. They got lost sight of the important things. And they lost sight of love and mercy, but not particularly bad how did Paul get to the point where he was involved in the murder of Stephen and instigated a major attack on the early church? Well, we're told that Saul was a young man. Acts 7.58 tells us that. And the best estimate by experts is that he was probably born between five and ten years later than Jesus. So he would have been in his early twenties when Jesus was crucified. But as a young man, well, think about it. Have you ever noticed that in general, young people tend to be more passionate and more actively committed to a cause they believe in than us older ones? Nothing else, they've got more energy. And because of his age and where he was, Saul may even have witnessed some of Jesus' teachings and his crucifixion. We know from Paul's own words, he was a devout and religious man before he became a Christian. In Philippians three four and six, four to six, he writes, "If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more." Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And in Acts 22, verse 3, which is the second account in Acts of Paul's conversion, Paul has been rescued by the Roman garrison from a mob who were accusing him of bringing Gentiles into the temple, and he tried to reason with the crowd, and he described his background there. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and brought up in this city, i.e. Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. So, he was of fully Jewish descent, even though he was born outside of Israel. He'd been trained in Jerusalem under one of the leading teachers of his day, Gamaliel. Now, you may remember that Gamaliel was a member of the Sanhedrin that spoke against killing the apostles in Acts 5, 34 to 39. When it said, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. And then he said to them, i.e. the council, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. And he went on to give two examples of people who would tried to foment a revolt, and failed. And he said, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan is, or under this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found, found fighting against God. Now, as a Cilician, it's possible that Saul had attended the synagogue that disputed with Stephen and ultimately arranged for Stephen to be murdered. Now, we read in Acts uh, 6, 8 to 14, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. remember we touched on some of this last week. Then some of those belonging to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others, those of Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen, but they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated to men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For well, we have heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed to us. If Saul had been involved in the conspiracy against Stephen in some way, remember when Stephen was stoned, they put the coats at the feet of Saul. If, Steve, if Saul had been involved in that conspiracy in some way, he wasn't just a convenient passerby to hold their coats, but he was someone who was known at them, known by them.
0: And Saul didn't stop there. He didn't,
1: thank you, there, uh, didn't stop with the murder of Stephen. He began to ravage the church, as we read in Acts 8, 1-3. And as a result, he scattered believers through Judea, Samaria, as they tried to escape. And because of this, the gospel was spread, Acts 8, 4, which Roy again pointed out to us last week. Now, Saul wasn't going to accept his targets getting away from him. He even went to the high priest for letters of authority to seek out and arrest Christians in the synagogue in Damascus. Now, Damascus was then the capital of the Arabian kingdom, Nabatea, ruled by King Aretas. So the Jewish high priest had no authority in that country. It's Under the Roman Empire, it has got a different king, different region. But the high priest's authority in religious matters was respected by synagogues across the Roman Empire, even if not by the local rulers. So provided Saul didn't cause a civil disturbance, he would probably have had few problems in seizing the believers. As we can see, his attitude was very different to his teacher Gamaliel. Yes, Saul was passionate about and dedicated to his Jewish faith, like Gamaliel. But that alone doesn't explain his breathing threats and murder against the Christians. And if you're breathing threats against somebody, that's pretty fundamental. Because, you know, what's the most fundamental thing your body does? It breathes. They say three weeks without food will kill you, three days without water. Try try holding your breath for three minutes and see what happens. Now... Saul had probably heard Stephen argue from Scripture that Jesus was the Messiah and had been unable to refute it. But he was a scholar. His whole job as a Pharisee was to know the law. So surely he would have read the relevant passages and considered whether Stephen was right. And although he rejected Stephen's arguments, surely they must still have had some impact on him. Touched some nerve deep within his soul that wanted a better relationship with God. Something more than he had. And I don't know about you, but I've often found that the people who are most ferociously opposed to a plan or an idea are the ones who don't really want to accept it for some reason, but are closest to actually having to accept it. For Saul, If Stephen was right, if Jesus was the Messiah, so much of what he'd been taught, so much of what he believed was wrong. And we can all sympathize with that to an extent, because who amongst us likes admitting we're wrong? Especially when what is wrong is at the core of our self-image. The core, our definition of what makes me, me, rather than you doesn't that hurt when you've got to say, actually, i am been wrong there? Well, Saul was on his way to Damascus when God intervened. Saul was knocked to the ground by a great light from heaven that shone around him. In the Old Testament, which probably would have been somewhere in the back of Saul's mind at this point, people often fell to the ground when they were confronted by a divine or an angelic revelation. Ezekiel, for example, when he saw his vision of God. In the 30th year, in the 4th month of the 5th day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the river Chebar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of someone speaking. Humans can't stand in God's presence. And Daniel, in Daniel eight seventeen when he had an angelic visitation, as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerning the end of time. But normally, the person receiving a vision in these cases was told to stand up. Ezekiel 2, 1. He said to me, O mortal, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. In Daniel's case, he touched me and raised me to my feet. In Saul's case, no, Saul's left on the ground. And he's left on his ground throughout his encounter. Saul knew his scriptures. That would have rung a bell. It made him realize something he'd been doing was not pleasing to God. And so would losing his sight, as he found out when he stood up. Jesus spoke to Saul. He read it in Acts 9.4. And asked why he was persecuting him. Terrible sentence construction there, i.e., why Saul, why are you persecuting Jesus? Now did Saul answer with a question, Lord, who are you? Saul's question was perhaps because he couldn't believe that with all his religious education, all his zeal, all his training, and his passion for his religion and for God. He was actually opposing God by his actions. There's a warning for all of us here. Hopefully none of us is going around tearing people out of their houses and throwing them in jail. But we can be passionate about our faith. We can have a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. We can think we're doing what God wants and yet still be working against God's will. Years later, when... As the Apostle Paul, Paul wrote to the Corinthian Church in one Corinthians two six to sixteen, Paul contrasted human wisdom with God's wisdom. Human wisdom is based on man-centered values, and it obstructs the work of God's, sister, uh, God's Spirit. So Paul pointed out, human wisdom, even from supposedly godly men, resulted in them opposing Jesus during His ministry, and ultimately crucifying him. Well, what did he mean? Well, how about Caiaphas, the high priest, John 11? As the high priest, Caiaphas was supposed to be the intermediary between God and the people. To understand God's will, to interpret and explain this then to everyone else. In John 11:50, however, we can see how Caiaphas depended on human wisdom when he declared, "It's better for one man, i.e., Jesus, to die, than for the people to have the whole, for the, for the people, than to have the whole nation destroyed." Now, although what Caiaphas proposed achieved what God planned, Caiaphas' plan was based on what he felt was politically best for the Jewish nation, not on what God. Was actually doing. And as we've already seen, Saul himself decided it was right to persecute Christians because he wouldn't accept he had misunderstood the message of the Jewish Scriptures and the promised Messiah. He thought he was doing God's work. How do we avoid falling into that trap and being caught like Caiaphas and Saul and so many others down the year? Well, the answer is We've got to keep close to Jesus day by day. To allow his spirit to work in our lives. Jesus promised his disciples in John 14, 26, that the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all I've said to you. And Paul goes a bit, explains a bit more in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 to 13. For what human being knows what is truly human, except the human spirit that is within? In other words, I know what I'm thinking, I know what I'm like. You know some of me, you don't know all of me. You're no different. You know what you're really like. So we know that. So also, no one comprehends what is truly God's, except the Spirit of God. Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God. So we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God, And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. So what are we saying? Well, to keep close to Jesus, to let the Holy Spirit work in our lives, we need to spend time in prayer. And we need to regularly study the Bible, God's Word. This book is our authority on spiritual matters. It's not our feelings. It's not what other people tell us. It's what's written in here. And we need to understand it and know it. We need to let ourselves be un- guided in our understanding by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised. And we need to be willing to test what people teach against Scripture. So this afternoon, rather than sitting in the garden, perhaps you need to be looking through the passage and the references I've made and saying, was he right? Because none of us who stand here are perfect. You know, we get things wrong. We misunderstand things ourselves. You need to check. It's not unlikely that anyone's going to stand here and say, Jesus isn't the Son of God. Not more than once anyway. And probably only half a sermon in that case. But you, know, you need to be clear. You need to check that we're doing That's why, for example, when we use scripture references, often we'll use several, or from different bits of the Bible, so that you can see there's a consistency. Otherwise, you can take a single verse out of context. I mean, Roy's told a couple of times, and I've heard it before, the story of the man who decided to get some guidance. Judas went out and hanged himself. Okay. Go and do likewise. That's taking verses out of context. You've got to look at it. There is a consistent theme and message in the Bible you know, and if it's consistent, then we can see the truth. But it takes more than one verse.
0: And we've got an example in the Bible of people who did that.
1: In Acts seventeen, Paul had been had a couple of rough rides in different towns, and he ended up in Berea. And Luke tells us that Berean Jews were more noble than the others because they went and studied the Scripture to see if what Paul was teaching was right. They were looking at it and checking. And as a consequence, the ministry there was, was far more successful than some of the others. And we also need to make sure we don't become like those in the synagogue of the freedmen. I put group frink up there, but those people, you know, they were trying to serve God. They were trying to protect the Jewish religion from somebody who they believed was blaspheming and teaching the wrong things. So to sort him out, they broke the law, thou shalt not kill. They broke the law, thou shalt not bear false witness. Now they would probably have sort of excused themselves, well we didn't kill him, the council sentenced him to death, and we didn't give false witnesses, we just arranged those guys to come and give false, be false witnesses. But it's so easy if you only meet with people who think the same way. Let's take a practical example. If you have a view on tithing and you only ever talk to people who have the same view on tithing, are you ever going to have your thinking t- tested? And equally, if you're only talking to people with the same thoughts, then you reinforce it. And don't we see that so much nowadays on the so- in social media? Conspiracy theorists, flat earthers, Trumpists? help us? Yeah. So many places where, and you see it in religions as well, and you get the cults because you're not allowed to think. You're told what to believe. You've got, you know, we've got to be open to the spirit to lead us individually. But you equally you need to do it together but just watch out for that, that having too close an environment. Anyway, moving on with Paul's story. In Acts 22, Luke recount, uh, tells his second Um, Accounts of Paul's conversion, where Paul was defending himself in front of the Roman governor and uh, Herod. And Luke tells us that Jesus, or Paul, asked Jesus another question in his encounter with Jesus, in verse 10 of Luke Acts 22, where he said, what am I to do, Lord? Now the Lord in this question is different to the one before. In the first time it was Lord, it was, it was probably more of a polite maybe reverent form of address, but to somebody he didn't know. In this one, Saul was accepting that Jesus was his Lord, his Messiah, his Saviour. Now we'll leave Saul there for a minute to be led by the hand into Damascus and turn to Ananias.
0: What do we know about
1: Ananias Well, we know from Acts 9, verse 10, that Ananias was a disciple of Jesus. We also know from Acts 22, verse 12, that he was Jewish, he was a devout man, and he was well-respected in the Jewish community in Damascus. He wasn't one of those who was a refugee from Saul's persecution. He actually lived in Damascus and lived there for some time. That wouldn't have saved him when Saul got there in his, with his original intentions. And I always have a lot of sympathy for Ananias, Is, can you imagine him regularly praying, praying, sorry, playing, praying that God might use him in His service, the way that perhaps you and I do? And then he got an answer, and the answer he did not like: go to Straight Street. And lay hands on Saul of Tarsus so he regains his sight. Ananias had obviously heard what had happened to the believers in Jerusalem, and he also heard what Saul was intending to do in Damascus. Ananias trusted God, but he didn't understand why he was being asked to do, what God had just told him to do. So he queried it. And you see that in Acts 9:13 and 14? When we don't understand, one of the things that we've, is always open to us is to ask the question and ask God what it is, that, why he wants us to do something. He may give us an answer. God wants us to become more like Jesus. Part of that is us growing in understanding of God. Now quite often, that comes from us being obedient and experiencing what God has planned for us. And in many cases, that's the best way to learn because most people will learn more by doing than by thinking. We can see an example, but sometimes it comes through God's word. Now we obviously get it through the Bible, but other, you know, in in Old Testament and New Testament times, the Bible wasn't complete, and we can see an example of how this worked for Abraham. Um, when God visited him just before the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 8 in eighteen, seventeen to 19. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do before he went down into the valley, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what is promised. So God explained what he was about to do, and Abraham's faith grew because he actually got a chance to pray about it, and God's punishment was mitigated to an extent. I always wondered what would have happened if he'd gone below the ten and asked for five or even one righteous person. In Ananias' case, God responds to his question, and gave him, and us, more insight into God's plan. And Ananias responds to God's explanation by going to see Saul. Now that seems simple. A lot of people think that Ananias potentially lived at the other end of Straight Street from the house where Paul was staying. So all he had to do was get out the front door, walk down the road, ask someone, do you know where this guy is, and be pointed in the right direction. How much courage and faith did it take for Ananias to take that short walk? He knew who Saul was, and what Saul was in Damascus to do. We'd seen that already. Ananias was potentially walking into the lion's den. But Ananias had been changed by his encounter with God. Not only was he fully trusting, but his heart had been changed too. And when he meets Saul in verse 17, look how he greets him.
0: Brother Saul, he says. Brother.
1: If you had only read verse 13, where Anandas talked about how Saul was there to destroy the church, can you imagine him calling Saul Brother. not only did he call Saul brother and do what he'd been told to do, Ananias must have told the other disciples in Damascus what had happened to Saul. Because we read in verse 19 that for several days, he, Saul, was with the disciples in Damascus. And it must have taken courage and faith of those disciples too to take Saul in, even with Ananias' testimony. They didn't know Saul from Adam. People make mistakes. And in, fact, in contrast them with the disciples in, in Jerusalem, just a few verses further down, when Saul went down to Jerusalem and tried to join the disciples, what happened? They ran away from him. They wouldn't let him join with them. They didn't accept that he'd become a believer and were afraid of him until Barnabas went and got him, spoke to him, and then brought him to them and got them to accept him. And it wasn't just hospitality that the, the Damascus disciples offered. When he could see again and regained his strength, Saul went to the synagogues where he had his letters of authority. But rather than seeking out Christians, he proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God, Acts 920 22 he now put his training and knowledge of Scripture to use to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And as a result, the Jews and the local authorities conspired to kill him. We read about the Jews doing it in Acts 9.23, and if you look at 2 Corinthians eleven thirty-two to 33 Paul says, in connivance with the local Tetrarch, the guy who actually ran the city for the king. It was the Christians in Damascus that saved Saul, They helped him escape in defiance of the local authorities when the gates were shut by letting him down in a basket through the wall.
0: So what can we learn from this?
1: Well, firstly, if anyone had asked the believers in Jerusalem who was least likely to be saved, where do you think Saul would have come on their list? Number one, two, somewhere up there. He searched them out. And by his own admission, he did his best to have them condemned. He tells us that in Acts 26.10. Yet God had plans for Saul. All of Saul's experience and training were preparing and equipping him for his ministry as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Stephen may well have planted seed in Saul. But in his own time, God stepped in and brought Saul into his family. And if rabidly anti-Christian Saul could be saved, we can't write anyone off as too bad to be saved. Certainly, we mustn't use that as an excuse not to witness to anyone when God gives us the opportunity. Saul's conversion was God's initiative. And today, when we witness, we might be a Stephen or Ananias to somebody planting a seed, but it's still God's role to bring them to faith, not ours. Our task is just, in inverted commas, to be a witness. Now, I accept being a witness takes courage, it takes faith. But that's what we're called to do. Secondly, we need to be obedient to God's word. As Saul was after his encounter with Jesus, and as Ananias was when he went to minister to Saul. It may take courage. It will certainly take faith. But if God is sending us somewhere... Even if it doesn't make sense, we need to trust God. Again, some years later, Paul wrote in Romans 8, 31-32, If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own Son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? In that assurance, we can step out obediently, confident in our God. Like that first song, God in front of us. God behind us, God either side of us, we're protected. Then thirdly, we need to be like Ananias. God sent him to Saul, a man that Ananias only knew as a persecutor of the church. Yet when God told him what Saul's role was going to be, he not only went and showed love to Saul, calling him brother, he went further and persuaded the local church to accept and welcome Saul too. Are we prepared to welcome people into our church who are not like us? Look around. We're a right variety. But aren't there
0: some commonalities? You know? People not like us aren't here. We may have
1: people come in who even frighten us. I knew a guy many years ago who was a great Christian, but had been a hell's angel. What would you say if a hell's angel walked in the door now? Are we prepared to take that on? Are we willing to show them God's love, no matter what it might cost us? Yes, I know about your background too, Rosie. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, are we willing to be like Saul? To put our experience, our skills, our resources and learning, however great or small they are, to use for the kingdom. Saul started a witness almost immediately. God enabled him to use his learning and teaching skills to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim it powerfully. Of course, he knew the scriptures by heart. He was a Pharisee. That's what they did. Now, none of us have had the same sort of training as Saul. Even Barry hasn't had the same sort of training as Saul. Neither are we all meant to be great preachers and evangelists like him. Thank goodness. And that's also to stop you throwing rocks at me. But God has been preparing each one of us through our experience, through the skills that we have got, for a specific role here in Amesbury Baptist. For a specific role in our community, among our families, the places where we work, where we socialize, where we learn, and anywhere else that God may put us and where we encounter people. We need to be open to hear what God wants us to do and then get on and do it. Saul took a risk when he went into the synagogues to proclaim Jesus. But he did it willingly to serve his newfound Lord. Are we willing to get out of our comfort zones to take risks to serve Jesus? Most of all, are we prepared to witness Jesus commanded his church, that's you, it's me, it's each and every one of us, to be his witnesses. It's not optional, it's a command. It doesn't take extended training. It's not about standing on street corners or on beaches preaching, though some people can do that. It's being willing to talk to people about what we've experienced, what Jesus has done for us how he's made a difference in our lives and how he can make a difference in theirs. It's about showing them God's love, practical love, however and whenever we can. Just as Ananias and the other disciples in Damascus did for Saul. And think about Jesus as well. When he proclaimed the gospel, what did he do? He healed the sick. He helped made the blind seen. He threw out cast out demons. He fed the hungry that practical piece that gets us the right to explain why and about God's love. Paul challenged his readers in Galatians 6, 9-10. Don't become weary in doing good, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Therefore, as you have opportunity, do good to all people, especially to those who are of the families of believers. We may not be a Saul, we may not be an Ananias, they had special roles, but let's make sure that we each play fully our parts in God's work, both as individuals and as a body of his people here in Amesbury, or wherever he may send us at some nice time, so that when we face Jesus, when he comes again at the end of time, he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant.